This is the Swift by Sundell podcast, the show that answers your questions about Swift development. Hi, everybody, and welcome back for episode number 16 of this podcast. I'm your host, John Sundell, and with me here today is another fantastic guest. She is a mobile developer at Chorus, an expert on iOS accessibility, and an awesome conference speaker. It's Summer Panage. Welcome to the show, Summer. Thank you so much for having me, John. It is a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you on. How's things over in uh, San Francisco? Things are good. Uh, it's a sunny day, and uh, you know, can't can't complain too much. <laughs> yeah, that sounds good. So we both attended uh, in Spain uh, last year, but it was kind of funny because somehow we didn't actually end up meeting. I was so, so sick. I basically only left my hotel room to give my talk. So that is how that happened. <laughs> oh, wow. That sucks. It was a bummer. I mean, but I, I pulled it together. <laughs> yeah, it, you, it didn't come off at all on stage. So yeah, you did a good job there. <laughs> that would explain why I didn't see you around for the rest of the conference. Then. Oh, I know. And it's such a bummer because NS Spain is, is you know, as you know, it's such a fun conference and there's so many great people. Uh, I was very bummed to not get to do Pretty much anything. Yeah, right. The tapas and the wine and all that stuff. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, there's always next year, right? Yes, yes, hopefully. Yeah, awesome. So you've been uh, doing a bunch of really interesting things. Uh, you've worked for Apple, you work for Twitter, and now you're working for a smaller startup called Chorus. That's correct. Yeah, can you tell us a little bit about what you do? For sure. Uh, so I uh, was brought into Chorus as the first uh, iOS mobile developer there. Chorus is a social fitness platform, and so we're really trying to look at um, you know, bringing together athletes and coaches uh, and kind of providing fitness content for those, um, for those small groups. So uh, you know, it's, we're very new. Uh, we uh, you know, still kind of figuring things out, uh, but it's, it's, really, it's been really exciting to do the startup thing because, as you mentioned, I'd only really done uh, bigger companies before. Uh, so yeah. Yeah, that sounds super exciting. It's actually the same for me right now. I also worked for like Spotify and I did some work for Volvo and big companies like that. And now I'm working for a small Norwegian startup. So yeah, startup life is fun. <laughs> it is, it is. And it's a lot of surprises. A lot, you know, it's very dynamic. Um, so I'm definitely enjoying a startup pace uh, for a change. Awesome. So do you think Chorus will finally make me go to the gym? <laughs> that's, that's the dream. That's the hope. Um, you know, the one of the biggest things that helps people get motivated with fitness is uh, group accountability, and that's one of the things that Chorus is really trying to look into and try to harness uh, in our platform is helping people find that that group accountability. So maybe. Cool. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to the app launching. Maybe it'll get get me off the couch for once. <laughs> <laughs> All right, awesome. So what most people I would say uh, know you for, or at least uh, the thing that many people associate you with is your work around accessibility. Uh, you've been uh, very, you know, a big, um, what should I say, evangelist for accessibility, or you've been, you know, sharing a lot of information about it and, you know, how to make your app accessible. So how did you get into that? Like, how did you get started with accessibility? And why did you pick that as like your passion? That's a, that's a great question. 
so I got into accessibility. Um, I kind of stumbled into it, to be honest, and, and then fell in love with, with the technology. So uh, back when I was working at Apple, I originally uh, was working, um, one of the earliest teams I joined was the UI automation team. And as you probably know, uh, the UI automation framework was built on top of UI accessibility. And, and so by working on that team, I started to get to dig around in this UI accessibility code um, and just really started to you know, learn about the technology and I found it just so, so fascinating. Um, and then once I was at Apple, I, eventually I transferred over to Maps to help uh, with some accessibility and automation work over on Maps. Uh, so I got to dig a little deeper. I got to spend a lot of time with the accessibility team, and they are just really awesome people. Uh, and so that's where it, where it all started. And, and so then by the time I changed uh, over and I moved to Twitter, I was just, you know, I'd really believed firmly that accessibility was, you know, important, it was the right thing to do, and I wanted to kind of, you know, get other people on that um, bandwagon with me. Nice. Yeah, it's like most things, you kind of stumble into it and you're like, oh, this is really exciting. And then you kind of become the go-to person in that field wherever you go, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't really planned, but it ended up being a, a, quite a perfect fit for me, especially because I my background is psychology. Um, and I think there's a, you know, there tends to be a bit of psychology in accessibility sometimes. And so it, it just fit really, really well for me. Uh, yeah, accessibility is one of those things that is pretty interesting, I think, because it's it's one of the things that it feels like you kind of need to convince people is important, but at the same time, everyone kind of knows that it's important, you know? So it's kind of this interesting kind of limbo state that sometimes accessibility ends up being in where everyone kind of agrees is, yes, we should do this, but at the same time, maybe it's like because people don't really know where to start. I think, I think that's definitely a great point is often people, I think, don't know exactly where to start and they don't necessarily quite understand the use case because most of, most of us developers, not all, but most are using our phones in a pretty standard configuration. We're not using a lot of accessibility features, whether it be on mobile or on our machines. And so I think part of the question is where do I start? And I think the other part of the question is just, well, like, I know it's important, but like, what is it really? And how does it, how does it even work? Because uh, it's just not something we necessarily encounter uh, every day. Right. Yeah. It's uh, like this classic scenario where you know, the conditions you use your app in is what you tend to optimize for. And then you kind of, you hear about something completely different and you're, you're a bit oblivious to how that would work out, right? Exactly. Cool. So hopefully we'll answer some of those questions because we have lots of great questions here from the audience about accessibility and we'll get to that in just a second. So hopefully during the show, we will provide some starting points for people who want to go and make their app a bit more accessible. I hope so. So one more thing I want to ask you about, which I've noticed in your Twitter profile, is that you're a circus artist. <laughs> this is true. This is true? The rumors are true? <laughs> the rumors are true. <laughs> All right. So now you have to tell me more about that. Um, gosh, I oh, I don't even know where to start. Uh, that I have been a, you know, as a kid, I was an acrobat, and um, growing up, I was always just very active and very into the arts and very into physical, you know, physical fitness. And uh, around my late teens, early twenties, I, I discovered circus arts, and it just, um, I just felt, you know, again, I fell in love with it. I couldn't stop doing it. I went from training once a day to twice a day to every day, and uh, now I, um, you know, I actually for a while after I left Twitter, I worked full time with the circus. I taught and trained and performed uh, across the U.S. Um, and it just has become this huge part of my life and it's, you know, it's just this really beautiful community and uh, it feels really great to be part of it. Wow. Yeah, that's super cool. I love when I hear these things where people have 
hobbies that you know you wouldn't at all associate with being a developer you know some people is like what's your hobby project well you know i like to tinker around with swift scripting and what's your hobby project well i'm a circus artist <laughs> <laughs> yeah no it, it's I, for me it, it's a great balance because i i've never been so, like i as much as i love you know coding and swift and all of that it's like i also have to have a really physical existence and so having half of me be this you know programmer who sits at my computer and goes crazy with xcode and then half of me being this person that you know goes out to the gym and climbs up a rope and you know falls down and hopefully doesn't get hurt um <laughs> it's it's just it's a really good balance yeah yeah that sounds awesome all right so what do you say should we get started with our questions from the audience yeah let's do it i'm excited so as you know, this show is all about answering questions and talking about topics that were submitted by the listeners. And this is really what keeps the show going and what keeps it fresh. And I really love also that we have different kinds of questions for different guests. So here we're going to have lots of questions about accessibility, which I'm really excited about. So if you want to submit a question for an upcoming episode of the show, just head to swiftbysundell.com slash podcast, or you can just tweet your question or topic to at swiftbysundell on Twitter. So for this episode, we're going to kick it off with a great question, not about accessibility, but we're going to get there eventually. We'll, we'll start with a non-accessibility one. And this one comes from Kartik Krishnansnand. I hope I pronounced that correctly. Sorry if I didn't. Uh, but the question is, what's your go-to resource for anything to get up to speed with the developments in iOS APIs? And also, do you see an interesting company investment in making Swift-based app instead of using Objective-C? So I think we could start with the first part of this question there. And what do you think, Summer? Where do you usually go to find new information about new APIs for iOS? Yeah, that's I, I love that question because that's a question I think I asked myself a few a few years ago um, as I was kind of trying to dig around and find an IP, API that I needed. Uh, so I think the the first answer that comes to my brain is, is really obvious, but Twitter, actually. Twitter has been a really good resource for me. Uh, I think the key is you know, following a lot of great developers. They'll often tweet their new findings, then that'll lead me down somewhere, then I can tweet something. And so I've honestly found out a, about a lot of interesting things just via Twitter. Um, but beyond that, one of my favorite places uh, to dig around is the, um, the iOS Dev Weekly Newsletter. I feel like almost every week there's some interesting article about some API that maybe I haven't explored yet. Uh, so that's definitely a favorite uh, kind of discovery place for me. Um, and then lastly, probably again, a bit more obvious, but just watching WWDC videos, just, you know, kind of scrolling through, looking through like, oh, wait, I haven't heard about that one. Like, let me, you know, play that on a, on a lazy Sunday afternoon um, while I, you know, make some eggs. <laughs> uh, so, so I'd say in between those, that's kind of how I stay up to date is this kind of a combination of social media um, and, you know, just kind of perusing dub dub videos and, and that great newsletter that um, Dave puts out. Yeah. Yeah. The iOS Dev Weekly is a really good newsletter. Uh, I definitely agree, and especially WWDC, I think can be sometimes a little bit overwhelming because there's so much content, and if you would just watch all of the videos and pay attention to all of them, that would take a lot of time. Mm -hmm. So usually what I do is I focus uh, my attention on the what's new videos. So there's like what's new in Cocoa Touch, what's new in Swift, what's new in UI Collection View, and that way I can kind of stay up to date with the major changes uh, in the platform and in the APIs that I am using the most. Oh, that's a, that's actually a great tip. I love, yeah, the what's new videos are a really good way to do that. Another thing I, I remember that I do enjoy doing is with the um, Mac WWDC app, you can 
really easily search the transcripts. And so mm -hmm. often I'll search the transcripts for a certain topic and that will sometimes point me to, you know, places I didn't know existed. Yeah, totally. The Mac WWDC app is so good. Uh, it's funny because, you know, it's uh, it's not an official product, so a lot of people don't know about it. It's made by a friend of the show, uh, G Rambo. So we'll put a link to the in the show notes to that app. Definitely check that out. Yeah, definitely recommend that app. Yeah, super good. Uh, so yeah, I agree also with using Twitter is great because, you know, there maybe you won't get all the like in-depth information, but you'll get a little bit of a hint around what people are excited about, what they're talking about, and, uh, you know, you can dig deeper after that. Uh, so one thing that came up when Swift 4 came out, for example, was that uh, Ule Begeman, he made this awesome playground for, you know, all the new APIs in Swift 4. And that's like, that was a great resource to kind of get up to speed on on the new APIs in Swift 4. And that is that was kind of a thing that was going on Twitter that you could check out the playground. And, you know, he had lots of great documentation in there. You could kind of dive deeper from there. Yeah. Yeah, that, that playground, I didn't get a chance to play with it much, but it was, you know, super, super cool and definitely a great example of just, you know, way to discover things right through Twitter. Yeah, totally. Do you use playgrounds when you're like trying out new APIs or, you know, experimenting and things like that? Yeah, I would say maybe 50-50, just kind of depending on what I'm tinkering with. But if something feels pretty lightweight, um, I'll, I'll definitely just kind of play with it in a playground and, and see how it goes. And, and sometimes also for playing with um, you know, playing with auto layout and trying to get an auto layout just right, I'll throw up a playground and have the view right there and just kind of start tinkering with it right there. Yeah, that's a really good tip. I do that a lot as well. I think I mentioned so many times on the show, so people already know that I love using playgrounds. But <laughs> but yeah, it's a, it's a great tool for this kind of purpose as well. You know, you hear about something on Twitter, you just dive in uh, to a playground. And one more thing I want to mention also is don't underestimate the official documentation from Apple. Because mm. sometimes, you know, sometimes it can be a little bit lacking and sometimes it can have documentation like, you know, the, the property is called title and the documentation is the title, <laughs> you know, and then it's like, well, okay, thanks. Uh, but a lot of times it's great. You know, the, the Apple documentation is definitely most of the time really good, especially the modern documentation. So a lot of times I just dive into the documentation and read that. Yeah, that, that's a really great point as well. Um, yeah, I think that I spent a fair deal of time with, um, they've done a great job updating the accessibility documentation in particular. So um, that's a place where I've constantly been impressed with kind of what I, what I read there. So what about the second part of the question, um, kind of where do we see Swift going in terms of like adoption or conversion from Objective-C? So you currently work in Swift or do you work with Objective-C as well or how does it work? So at my little company, we are pure Swift. Um, so, and, and, you know, that, I mean, it was my decision cause I came in and I was the, <laughs> the only iOS developer. So I got to walk in and be like, we're doing Swift everybody, uh, nice. which, which felt pretty good. Uh, that was, that was fun. Um, and I, you know, from what I've observed, you know, I have friends at other startups and it seems like most startups these days, if they're just beginning their app from scratch, uh, they're mostly starting them up in, in Swift. I haven't met anyone yet who started something, a new project in Objective-C recently. Uh, so yeah. startups are certainly pushing in the Swift direction, I would say. Yeah, it makes sense. If you're building something from scratch, it's kind of most of the times it's pretty obvious to go with Swift because Apple is so focused on it. And, you know, all of the new resources are in Swift and it's, you know, developing quite quickly. Um, so it, it, unless you're doing something like, you know, interfacing a lot with C++, which you kind of need Objective-C for, mm -hmm. then, you know, most small companies and new apps, I guess, go with Swift. 
Yeah. And the, I mean, the other thing I'm seeing, of course, which we didn't go with my company, but I'm seeing a, you know, a fair deal of React Native popping up as well at, at small startups. Um, so that I, I feel like I see either Swift or React Native much more often than Objective-C. Yeah, for sure. So I feel sometimes when people ask me this question that, you know, um, what about Objective-C and what about Swift? Should I switch to Swift or like is Objective-C dying? Uh, it kind of feels like, you know, the, the people who are still using Objective-C can sometimes feel a little bit left out because there's such a heavy Swift focus in the community right now. Um, so one tip I want to give also is that if you are in the situation, like number one, don't feel bad because Objective-C is still a great language. And if you have a big code base, there's no like there's the house is not on fire you don't have to rewrite it right now but migrating if you can migrate piecemeal i mean that's 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 great if you can but if you for some reason can't then one thing you can do is you can start writing unit tests in swift oh that's a great point i hadn't thought of that but that's that's so true that's a great place to start with it and then you can at least get get the feel for it get it you know under your fingers a bit without having to move a whole code base which you know as i think i've heard from a couple talks from uber can be a nightmare yeah, definitely. It's uh, it's quite a big endeavor, and you know, depending on how your code is set up, it can be easier or harder. But you know, if you're writing a new test or something, just do it in Swift because that way you are still keeping in touch with the language and how it evolves, so you don't have this feeling of being left behind. Yeah, that's an awesome tip. I like that. All right, so now it's the time we're going to start talking about accessibility. This moment we've all been waiting for. <laughs> <laughs> and this is a great question. It comes from Ivan uh, Corchero Ruiz. And uh, he is an iOS developer at Chevy.com, which is an online pet store. And he volunteered to make their app accessible, but he has never done that before. So he's asking for some recommendations on how to make the app not just accessible, but to make it like a great experience for people with disabilities. So Summer, do you have some tips here for Ivan? Uh, definitely. This is this is one of those questions where I could, you know, take a you know, thirty minutes or two hours to to answer, but obviously I, I won't. <laughs> um, first of all, I love the idea of an accessible pet store application because there are so many differently abled um, communities that really rely on the services of support animals and service animals. Uh, so that's it's, it sounds like a really important cause. I mean, of course, every app should be accessible, but this one in particular, I think, is, is a great example of something that I think accessibility will be great, um, yeah. great for. Um, so as far as the question, I think that I, I like I like the question. I like that um, Yvonne is not just asking how do we become accessible, but how do we make it you know better than accessible? And I think that's a really good thing to ask. Um, so I guess one of the you know for for a, like a longer in depth answer, I would I would probably point um, Yvonne to some some of the accessibility talks out there. Um, you know, I have some. There's many other great ones. Um, uh, but some like the talk I gave at UICOMP is a really good kind of summary of, you know, kind of where to start with accessibility and kind of how to dig in. Yeah, we'll put a link in the show notes to that talk. Yeah, I think I think that's a, definitely a good one, just kind of a good starter talk and much more than I can say today. Um, yeah. But let's see, if we uh, if you want to make the app accessible on its own, you know, of course, you have to start with the basics, like before you can start thinking really big picture, you want to just think about all of those basics, things like your buttons and your images. Uh, that's going to be, you know, the kind of the ground zero. And then you have some, I think, some really important things, kind of next level. It's your fonts, for example. Like having dynamic text is something that is kind of really easily overlooked, but super important. Um, and things like color contrast, you know, keeping an eye on that. And then once you kind of have all that in place, then I think the big thing you want to think about is the actual experience 
of the application. So rather than thinking, oh, can the user tap this button, to think, oh, can the user actually go through this flow? So maybe in the case of a pet store, the flow would be like, I want to browse dog food and I want to pick my favorite dog food and I want to check out with my favorite dog food. And, and so perhaps that's a flow. And can the user actually get through that flow cleanly, easily, whether it's via voiceover, whether it's via a switch, whether it's just with the fonts scaled up huge, but can they actually get through that entire flow easily? Will it make sense? Will it feel natural? And so that's often the advice I give to people when they want to kind of think about more big picture accessibility and that general experience is to think of it less in terms of like, is each individual view accessible, but how does it feel to go through an entire flow? And where does that flow break down? Where does it get confusing? And is there something we can do? Maybe it's with accessibility, or maybe it's with navigation, or maybe it's with color, but is there something we can do to improve that flow so that it goes more smoothly for the user? Yeah, those are all really, really good tips. And, you know, I think it's pretty interesting because it's a little bit like you, you mentioned uh, that, you know, you might want to simplify things. And this might also be super useful for people who are not using accessibility features because you might, when you are exploring these things through something like voiceover, you might just see your app from like a different perspective. And it's like this classic tip, which is if you want to simplify like the navigation of your app, just like kind of, kind of write it out as a mind map. And if you see that the mind map is really complicated, well, it kind of means you have very complex navigation, right? But it's, it's the same thing here. Like if you go through it with voiceover on and it's like really complex, really hard to navigate, well, maybe that's a symptom of your navigation just being complex in general. Yeah, I think that's that's so true. And and there's definitely, you know, there's a temptation to, to you know, put a lot on the screen and, and there, it, sometimes it, it can be hard because Apple will give us all these cool new things that make everything swoopy and bouncy and, and it can be tempting to kind of overload you know, one individual view with all these things but then when we, we try to actually navigate it, it can become really confusing. And so yeah, I think that navigating with voiceover or with a cursor can be like a really great litmus test for just generally good navigation. And I think everyone can win when you have a simpler navigational structure. Like even if someone's not using voiceover, if perhaps even maybe an elderly user or just a new user who hasn't really spent much time on a device, like having this simple navigation will benefit them just as much as these other communities using assistive technologies. Yeah. Uh, what's also great there is you mentioned uh, things like dynamic type uh, and other accessibility features. Uh, I think that's super important to highlight because when I started learning about accessibility, I kind of had this uh, association in my mind that accessibility meant voiceover. And that was like the only accessibility feature. But there are so many things that you can turn on and tinker with in the accessibility settings. So can you run through, uh, like, what should people focus on when it comes to accessibility, you think, uh, except for voiceover and dynamic type? A big thing to focus on, I think I mentioned this briefly, is color contrast. Uh, there was a, a period of time where, and maybe it's still happening, where it was like so trendy to have this like really light gray text everywhere. Um, and, and it's just, you know, whether or not a user is low vision or maybe has some issue with color, like these types of low color contrast situations can be, um, you know, just really, really rough. 
Uh, another thing that I think is important is not just dynamic type, but dynamic layouts. Because if I start expanding my type, my layout is going to shift, things are going to happen. Um, and so I, I always kind of joke that auto layout is actually an accessibility feature. Um, <laughs> a a well-set-up auto layout system in my app is going to allow things to be flexible. So if I'm using dynamic type, if I allow my users to resize things themselves, um, it's going to play much nicer. Um, other things to watch out for are um, things like captioning. So if you have uh, video content or something like that or animations in your app that actually convey information, uh, you'll want to make sure that those have captioning. And sometimes it's, like you said, it's easy to think about the voiceover scenario, but maybe not as easy to think about other scenarios um, such as low hearing individuals. Um, so providing things like captioning can be really important for certain types of applications. Um, I guess the final thing I'd say that is kind of on the main list is, um, is signaling. So often we signal something like an error with a sound, or maybe we signal it with a color. Um, but kind of a common mistake is to only signal something one way. And so if I only signal an error with color, but no other information, then if a user has, I mean, perhaps it's just colorblind, then that information is going to be lost. And so I always recommend trying to signal any um, kind of dynamic information, whether, you know, whether it be a loading error or success or a, you know, it could be anything really, but signaling that dynamic information in more than one mode. So maybe it's color and sound, or maybe it's movement and sound, it, uh, but some kind of multiple ways to signal this information. So we're trying, you know, making sure we're reaching our users. Yeah, that's a really good tip. Just fire, fire on all cylinders. And yeah. Hopefully you, you'll get you'll get someone's attention. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Uh, that sounds great. Awesome. So really great tips there. Uh, what do you say? Should we move over to the next question? Yeah, let's go. I'm excited to hear some more accessibility questions. Yeah. Well, I have more for you. So here <laughs> we go. <laughs> all right. This next one comes from Sied, and Sied asks, "Do you put accessibility in mind from the start, or do you have some kind of checklist to go through in the final stages of the project?" So I think this is super interesting because it's a little bit like unit testing in a way where people are like, should you write the tests while you're developing a feature or at the end before you ship it? And I feel like accessibility sometimes put like in the same kind of bucket, uh, if you will. So how do you usually deal with this kind of stuff? Like, do you plan it from start? Do you, do you work on it as you're working on something new or do you kind of save it for the end? Uh also, it's a really good question, and, and it's a complex one, because in fact, I, I would say the answer is all of the above. Um, accessibility is something that I kind of consider at all stages and in different ways, depending on the type of project I'm on. Um, so, for example, if I'll start kind of with a basic example. If I'm working on an app and that app is already shipping, uh, then... I get us and let's say I get assigned a new feature on that app, like, oh, go implement messages or something. Then I'm going to build that new feature accessible from the ground up um, because that app is already shipping. And as soon as that feature goes out, like it's, it's going to need to be accessible. And so I'm going to really think right from the beginning, okay, this feature has to be accessible from like day one. Um, and so generally that's kind of how I think of in terms of a shipping app. Um, but if we switch gears and think of something more like being at a startup where I'm, you know, my app isn't even shipping yet, then I tend to, I kind of think of it a little differently because, um, you know, with a startup, I might go through the same UI four or five times with different designs as we're iterating, iterating, iterating. And so in, in that scenario, often what I'll do is I'll, you know, I'll get a design and I'll, I'll put on my accessibility eyes and I'll, I'll go through it and I'll say, okay, well, what in this design just couldn't work at all? Like what just needs to go back to the designer? And so I'll address those initial accessibility concerns right away from the very beginning. But then 
once I go and I actually start implementing, there may be something that's maybe a bit more complex to implement. And so I might put that on the back burner since I know this isn't going to ship and I, you know, I'm going to be very strict to make sure it does ship accessibly. I might say, okay, well, this UI might change next week and I'm at a startup and I know this. And so I might say, okay, I'll hold off on this more complex accessibility work until I, you know, until I know that this is actually what we're going to ship to our customers. Um, and so it's it's really something where I, I kind of have to, you know, I'm constantly kind of weighing it and deciding where it goes. Uh, but at the same time, like always thinking of it at every stage. Yeah. Yeah. To use the kind of unit testing analogy again, it's kind of similar where you wouldn't want to write your entire feature or your entire code base without thinking about unit testing. Even if you don't have either time for it or you, you know, you for some reason can't fit it in right now, you don't want to paint yourself into a corner. And it's a little bit the same thing here where it's like you don't want to uh, build UIs that are really going to be really hard to make accessible because if you're going to save that all to the end, well, it's going to be really hard to to make that happen. Yeah, that's exactly true. And I think one of the biggest parts of accessibility work is actually having that, is really having a good relationship with your designers and your product people. Um, because that's often where it starts is, you know, I can tell you all about the UI accessibility APIs and tell you how to add, you know, announcements and labels. But in the end, like, if the design itself is is not boding well for accessibility, like it's just it's it's never going to be easy, and so starting early, looking at the you know, working with your designer if you can, making it a product priority if you can, like those are really early important things to consider, even if you know that the engineering work might not happen until a little bit later. So what do you usually look for when you get a new design and you want to kind of review it from an accessibility perspective? What do you usually look for that would make it hard to? make accessible. I'll sound like a broken record here, but one of the first things I look at are those colors. If those colors are, you know, not not high contrast, that's one of the first things I'll call out. Um, I'll look at how labels are kind of arranged and if they um, allow for flexibility. So sometimes I'll get um, a layout that, you know, maybe the label is only one line and it's really only meant to be one line. And that's obviously not something that can work because if that dynamic type is ramped up, then we're going to have an issue. Um, so I'll look for things like that. I'll look at the size of my tap targets. If I see lots of little tappy things, I'm going to call that out because um, tap target size is really important for any users that might have difficulties with their motor abilities. Um, so that's going to be something I look for. Um, I'll look at the general um, layout. Is it relatively hierarchical or is it kind of all over the place? Um, when I have to convert something into, you know, when something's converted into voiceover, it essentially becomes one-dimensional. It's, it's essentially a list of items on the screen. And um, conveying hierarchy that's really complex, of course, is very difficult. And so if I, you know, look at this layout and it's, you know, like something like a Twitter feed where it's pretty straightforward. I have a, you know, a heading, I have a list of items, I have some, maybe some tabs at the bottom, then okay, that's pretty, pretty good. But if it has, you know, buttons here and there and things that, you know, oh, this is going to reveal something from the side and it, it's really complex, then that might be something I, I say, hey, can we like simplify this design? This feels really, really tough. Um, I'll look for images that contain text. So, um, it's, I always like my text to be text and my image to be image. And so if an image actually has built-in text, I'll call that out and say, hey, like, can we like pull this out and make this part, you know, make this a label that is, you know, imposed on the image. Um, because often it's, it can be difficult to remember to make those things accessible and localized, et cetera. Right. So you mean if you have actually like embedded text in the actual image asset, like in Precisely. the PNG. Precisely. Yes, yeah. exactly. Embedded text in the PNG. Exactly. I'll, I'll, I'll call that out 
not a fan of that. Um, yeah, is that, <laughs> does that answer your question? That was yeah, kind of like, totally. Totally like picturing a design in front of me. I'm like, all right, what do I nag the designers about? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I totally agree. And for me, it ties very well together with the thing you said earlier, which you said like auto layout is actually a great accessibility tool. And I totally agree with that where... You know, you see this big shift right now where in the early days of iOS, we would create this like really pixel perfect designs. They were exactly 320 by 480 pixels. You know, they could, if one pixel moved, everything would break. (laughs) They (laughs) were like really, really just made for that screen. And now we have so many different screen sizes. We have accessibility. We have things like right to left languages. We have dynamic type. We have all these kind of things to keep in mind. And the more we can make our designs more fluid and more about like what are the actual important kind of philosophies behind this design, what is it that we're actually trying to convey instead of having like this exact measurements everywhere? Yes. Oh, I, I, could, I could not agree more. Um, yeah, the idea of like a design as a concept rather than design as a, you know, this as kind of architecture so to speak where it's just like so precise down to down to the wire um i really yeah i I love that idea yeah exactly thankfully we're not building houses here so we can be (laughs) a little bit fluid (laughs) we can be fluid and i also i really love the point you brought up which is localization um as you mentioned like um we have right to left languages we have languages like japanese that take up much less space we have languages like german that take up much more space and Mm -hmm. and so it's not always even about accessibility in in the kind of traditional sense it's just about just general like you want other people in other countries to use your application like a flexible layout is going to be your saving grace yeah and if you put that kind of in your workflow to begin with i also i also think that it everything just becomes easier because then you don't have to be go through your app like let's say you're supporting 10 different languages and you have to go through and like test everything and oh, does this, oh, this label didn't fit. I have to like code the specific rule for this. You know, it becomes so much more easier to work with. Oh yeah, totally agree. (laughs) Cool. So uh, great to hear. It sounds like you're taking the pragmatic approach, you know, to to not, even though you believe accessibility is really important to not have it as like a, you know, you have to do it all the time from the beginning. You know, sometimes you can kind of be a bit flexible with when you implement it. Yeah, I think there's some flexibility. Like I said, if your app isn't shipping, you know, if this is, uh, you know, back when I was at Twitter, of course, the app was shipping. And so, you know, if a feature, if I knew the feature was going out, like I had, you know, that's a bit of a different rule. But I think when you are in that in startup mode, you can be a little more flexible with yourself um, and allow yourself a little more space to figure out what you're building before you go and build something, you know, you know absolutely perfect. Um, but I think that once you want, once you hit that, you know, app store button it it sure sure better be fully accessible at that point (laughs) (laughs) it sure better be awesome cool so we're going to move over now to the next question and this one comes from ashton williams and ashton asks summer you are an accessibility legend so you you are officially a legend uh And Ashton would like to hear some of your, you know, your stories of your uh, really tough uh, accessibility problems and dead easy ones. So let's sit around the accessibility campfire here and hear some of your your stories from the battlefield. <laughs> oh goodness, stories! I mean, some the the dead easy ones I think are are you know are the obvious you know are the are the obvious things. I remember, um, you know, back back when I started at Twitter. Um, 
I remember getting some bugs and, you know, sometimes I would just laugh because it would be really, truly as simple as just adding a label, um, you know, just like put a label or add an accessibility trait. And, and oftentimes this, those kind of bugs would remind me that like, it it's just so important to have education um, built into the company for accessibility because, you know, these were things that I know that any engineer could fix in, in five minutes. It was just that they didn't really know what it, what it meant. Like, oh, it's not accessible. Like, what does that even mean? Yeah. Um, I, I'm just going to send this to Summer. <laughs> She'll fix it. <laughs> and, and so that was actually, that led me down the road of um, starting an accessibility class when I was at Twitter. Um, and it's something that I would highly encourage for anyone at a bigger company um, to, to do if, it's, you know, if that's something you're excited about is just start, start a little class. People can come and just learn about all those basic things, all those easy things that you know that everyone can fix in, you know, 10 seconds if they just know the, the right thing to do. Um, and so I think like dead easy kind of the answer there is like education, like making sure that everyone knows the basics is it pays off so, so, so much because all of a sudden yeah. then you're not making some poor accessibility team go and like add labels to things and, you know, just doing this, this work that, you know, is just easy for everyone. Yeah, totally. And so that would be my, that'd be kind of my dead easy category um, was adding education um, at, at Twitter and it really did make a big difference. Um, and let's see, then the hard stuff. <laughs> I think the, <laughs> the, the hardest problem I have ever faced in accessibility and continue, well, I think will continue to face is user supplied content. User supplied content is really hard because unlike everything that I choose to put in the application or my designer does or my product person, uh, user supplied content is, you know, it's a freebie. Who knows what it's going to be? Um, and so when users can, you know, another example from my Twitter days is like users could supply, you know, images for their tweets. And of course, like those images aren't accessible. And so one thing that we, you know, we struggled with for years at, and trying to understand how to do was like, can we somehow get users to add text descriptions to these images for the for the visually impaired community but then the question is okay well like if users add these descriptions but then they add them but can't see them themselves like how do we convey that like it just it's a, it's a very big can of worms because you're you're essentially saying you know users provide content in this you know in the way that they're used to but then how can you somehow provide more for more info for that content for the users who need it um, and, you know, I know Facebook has been looking a lot with AI um, in um, image recognition systems to try to use that to help users. Um, Twitter, like I said, we went with the user supplied um, image description uh, idea and went that route. Uh, but it's a really hard problem uh, to, to really understand how can we best get as much information across to everyone um, when the users are supplying the content rather than the company. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we talked earlier about that it's hard sometimes to get developers to do accessibility, uh, even though there's all this information and, you know, Apple constantly talking about it and everything. Uh, so then we have the users, right? And they are even less inclined to even know about these kind of things if they're not using any of these accessibility features themselves. Exactly. Yeah, so I think the the application of machine learning there that you mentioned, or AI, that's super interesting because that's that's an area where we could really make a big impact. Where where if you have something which is like, uh, you know, maybe you're posting text as an image, which I am guilty of. I, I actually do now make it accessible as much as I can with the text field on Twitter, uh, but awesome. it's hard, you know, because like how do you like a picture says more than a thousand words, right? That's the classic saying. So <laughs> and we only gave you like two hundred and sixty or something. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, or 260 characters, yeah, even, characters, right? characters, yeah, characters, yeah, it's pretty, pretty short. So you got to be yeah. concise there. <laughs> yeah. So I think it's it's super interesting. I mean, both approaches are good, but it's super interesting to see like what happens there in the ML field, 
see if we can actually uh, automate some of these things. Yeah, and I think in the end, with something like that, the answer is always going to be both. You know, I think yeah. that that we can benefit so much from machine learning when it comes to captioning. Like we see that on YouTube, um, you know, doing the the speech recognition and and with what Facebook has been doing with images. But I also think like educating users. You know, even if it's not everyone, even if it's primarily you know maybe bigger corp corporate users for example like that's a much easier group to get to post um, images with with alt, alt text and with image descriptions um, and you know that's going to impact a ton of people if all of a sudden everything coming out of the new york times is always you know even through twitter is uh, got a great image description yeah so i think yeah we can we can go both ways and get the most benefits for sure yeah absolutely for me, um, the thing that's usually easiest when it comes to accessibility is when you have some UI that is mostly using standard components. And this is something, it's it's one of the things where like the older you get, <laughs> the, the more you just want to use standard components. Oh, so true, it's so true. <laughs> yeah, because you get, I mean, it's not only the accessibility part, but you get so much for free with just using like normal table views, normal collection views. Uh, you know, they're all kind of made accessible out of the box. So if you just use those things, uh, you get it for free. So that, that would I, I would say that's like the easiest part and it's another kind of feather in the hat for using as much standard controls as possible. Oh, 100% agree. I often will tell my designers when they're like, can you build this custom? I'm like, yes, but I don't want to and here's why. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've already made 100 custom collection views in my day. I just want to use a standard one. <laughs> yeah, please just let me. Yeah. No, it's, it's so true and you're right. Yeah, I mean, Apple does a great job of making their own stuff, you know, pretty darn accessibility friendly and when you use it, it's, you reap the benefits, no question. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the, the trickiest part for me, uh, the user-generated content, as you mentioned, is a great case. But also for me, it's like when you have these like more custom animations, for example, if you're using core animation or, you know, SpriteKit or something that is kind of outside of the standard accessibility API. I mean, you don't use that so much with that kind of stuff. So kind of, you know, try to figure out like how do I generate the labels dynamically for this type of content and this type of UI? Definitely. Yeah, and that's um, I think that is definitely a bigger a, big, a bigger challenge when you you know you have these custom animations. Um, one time I did an app uh, a demo app where I had graphs that you could kind of you know tinker with, and then the graph would update live using um, I think it was using core animation, um, and and kind of the thing that I tried to show with that was like okay well how do I you know okay update the graph then what do I need to do well I need to tell the user the graph changed okay well then what do I need to do okay well then I need to actually manually go in and find the different points in the graph and you know create accessibility elements for those points and and you're totally right it gets a much bigger chore at that at that stage yeah Absolutely. Um, so I think we have time for one more question. So we're going to switch gears now a little bit. Uh, we're going to talk about UI testing, which actually it's funny because it's a, still a little bit related to accessibility uh, because we talked about it earlier, how kind of the UI testing system is built on top of the accessibility system. So we have a question here from Grzegorz Vikiera. And uh, the question is, do you use UI tests in your apps? And which frameworks do you use? Do you just use Xcode UI testing or KIF or something like Earl Grey? And do you write tests yourselves or do you have a dedicated person for writing UI tests? So what about you, Summer? Do you do any UI testing? So at our tiny startup, we do not. Uh, we are, like I said, there's just myself and now one other developer on iOS that so we haven't quite reached the scale yet where we can UI test. So you don't? You mean you don't have a dedicated UI testing person? <laughs> we do not. <laughs> yeah, we actually have a QA team in a whole different building. <laughs> no, we. Uh, yeah, That's floor number five. 
<laughs> yeah, it's a, it's pretty bare bones in what we're doing. Um, but one thing we do is uh, we try to be really good about, um, you know, very well, um, you know, trying to unit test our code the best we can. And something that I've really found is that by writing very good compartmentalized um, code, we get a lot of code coverage just from our unit tests. And so then when we get to the point where we need to do UI testing manually, of course, it's not so bad because we actually get a lot of um, confidence from our unit tests. Yeah, that's a really good point. Uh, and it also kind of ties into trying to separate things, split things out, create more like modularity in your code base, which will enable you to unit test it and be confident in the quality of each moving part. Yeah, precisely. And that's that's something we really tried to do from the beginning is, you know, break out everything into frameworks and break those frameworks down into components and, and try to test those components. And so um, that's that's kind of given us a, a much, like I said, much more confidence, despite, you know, not having a QA team or anything to help us out. I also use U U unit testing a lot more than UI testing. Uh, it's more just this kind of thing where it ties better into my workflow usually, where you have just a faster feedback cycle. You write some, you know, some part of your code and you're writing the test for it and you can get kind of this quick validation. While UI tests is more, you know, they're running a lot they're taking a lot longer to run and they actually have to run the actual app and interact with it. Uh, but that being said, I love UI testing and I think it's a super valuable tool. So in the current app that I'm working on, we have a pretty much one kind of UI testing suite. And this is pretty interesting. So I wanted to implement some UI tests and the, the, the thing I chose to implement them for were analytics. And there's a reason for that where if you're gonna UI test your analytics, you have to pretty much go through the entire app and click on every kind of, make every kind of key user interaction. And that way you won't only UI test your analytics, but you will actually just UI test your app in general, like all your key user interactions. So that for me was a great kind of bang for the buck where I could write like a single test suite. It's like less than a thousand lines of code, but it covers almost all of the key user interactions in the app. Oh, that's that's really cool. I like that. <laughs> no, it's definitely like two birds with one stone with that one. Yeah, and the thing with analytics also is it's super hard to unit test properly because if you want to make sure that you know a certain analytics event is sent when you let's say create a new post or you are liking some photo in a social networking app, that's that's kind of hard to do programmatically and it, or it's at least hard to mimic the kind of real life uh, conditions that you would find yourself in. But with a UI test, that's actually pretty easy. Yeah, that's a great point. It's a really great use case for that. And I mean, of course, um, when you do take the time to make your um, make your UI uh, UI testable, then by default, it's going to have to be more accessible. So um, that's kind of another win that you get right there just by ha choosing to make unit uh, UI tests. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it ties into the thing we said earlier, where it's like when you look at your kind of hierarchy from a different perspective, you also, it's also, it's healthy, right? You just see it from a different perspective and you see how it's like to interact with your UI programmatically. Yeah, that's so true. And you can often catch just like um, little hidden things that you may not have noticed, views that, you know, are masking other views that maybe visually you didn't catch, but oh, now you're trying to tap it and you have a problem. <laughs> and it's just, it's, it's really handy that way. <laughs> yeah. One thing that I hear very often when people talk about UI tests and the reason they don't do them is, that, that there's kind of a big maintenance cost to UI tests. And I will definitely agree with that in general. Like when I was working at Spotify, for example, it was very common that the UI tests would start to break and we would have to go in and fix it. And it wasn't always a legitimate breakage. Like sometimes it was just that the testing code 
was not really like, you know, updated, wasn't dynamic enough for the content. So do you have some tips when it comes to uh, UI testing on how to kind of make them easier to maintain? Um, one thing that I uh, have recommended a lot to people is utilizing um, identifiers for things. Um, so this is, this is very iOS specific, of course, um, but uh, you can, when, when you, if you're using Xcode test, and I believe KIF ties into this as well, but I don't remember, um, but tying into the accessibility label is of course one way to tap something on the screen. Um, you can tie into the accessibility value in some cases, but the thing that's really best to tie into is the identifier because that doesn't, if your label changes, your identifier doesn't need to. And so oftentimes when we would get test failures, it'd be like, oh, we changed the go button text to start. And so mm -hmm. now yeah. the testing system doesn't know what to do. But if the identifier has just always been Go and it's always going to be Go because no one's ever going to visually see that or hear it in VoiceOver, then that's, you know, it's going to be so much better. And so that was one thing that I found was really pushing people, just use identifiers. Don't use anything else. Always test on <laughs> identifiers. Um, yeah. So that was a big push that I had to make because um, uh, often people were using labels and other things. Yeah, it also helps a lot with the dynamic content problem, where mm -hmm. if you want to test something against your kind of real content and your real networking stack, then you're going to have the problem where you don't really know what content you're getting from, this, from the backend, for example. And if you're using identifiers, then you get around that problem pretty easily as well. Exactly. Yeah. In general, I would, I would also recommend that, of course. That's a great tip. And also just to keep things simple. I mean, this is the thing I think with testing in general is that don't, don't necessarily try to cover everything. I think it's better to have a simple test suite that is focused and that tests something that is kind of, in this case, kind of time consuming to go through manually and just focus on that and try to make that as simple and stable as possible with identifiers and also with things like, instead of putting waiting time in your test where you're like, let's wait for five seconds for this uh, backend request to come back, to actually wait for the element to come yes. in. So you can oh, actually just so wait for that. Uh, there's an API for that on the on the element query. Uh, and that way you don't you don't end up with these kind of race conditions, which are really hard to debug as well. Yes, no, I, I totally agree. Waiting for the element is that was, when I discovered that many years ago, I was like, this is this is the greatest thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you can do cool stuff. You can do things like wait for the if you have like a loading indicator, you can have like wait for the loading indicator to disappear, for example, mm -hmm. and that can be an indication that the request is returned. Yep. Yeah, no, it's 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 a really like a much cleaner way to do it. Cool. So that's all the questions that we had for this episode. So I want to thank everyone who sent in these questions and topics. They were really great. And keep them coming. Uh, just head to swiftbysundell.com slash podcast, submit a question or topic for an upcoming episode, or just go to swiftbysundell on Twitter and submit your question or topic there. So for this episode, we've now reached the end. So I want to thank you very, very much, Summer, for joining me on this episode. Yes, thank you so much. It's been really fun. I loved all the questions. So also thank you to everyone who wrote in. That was um, it was really cool. I had a great time. Yeah, it was a lot of fun and lots of great information, I think, about accessibility. And we'll make sure to put links to all those things we discussed in the show notes. If people want to you know, go watch your talk, they want to go find out more information about the accessibility APIs, etc. So there'll be a lot of stuff in the show notes for you as well. So if people want to find you online and follow you, where should they where should they head? The best place to find me is going to be on Twitter at summer with an O, so S-O-M-M-E-R. Um, you can also head over to my GitHub, which is spanage, or spanage, if you will. 
<laughs> um, but yeah, those are probably the two best spots. And you can find me online as well. I'm at John Sundell on Twitter, and you can find everything that I do at swiftbysundell.com. Thank you so much for listening, everybody, and I'll talk to you on the next episode.